You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch, but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. So last week was a lot of that, the teaching, right? A lot of the, the, the when and the where the, and stuff like that, but uh, we're going to look at the birth of, of salvation this morning. It won't be um, as much like I said it probably would would be last week, going through all of the narrative here in, in Luke. Uh, but but we're gonna we're just gonna hit upon a couple of things, and then we're gonna jump around a little bit in the Bible because uh, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but I'm more of a, a opt- optimistic when it comes to the scriptures. Um, I see a. Sort of a, a different thing going on here than than most Westerners do, I think. Uh, so uh, I'll talk about that a little bit today. I've mentioned it before here and there. Uh, you'll hear more about it this morning. So we'll we'll start though in Luke chapter one, and uh, <clears throat> just to get some context of what's going on here, because uh, we're not going to read everything, but we we do see there in chapter one about John the Baptist being foretold. So there's this angel of the Lord that has been sent first to, uh, to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, just to make a note here in case you guys don't know, we have that blank piece of paper, right, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. All right, we're still really Old Testament, Though um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, halfway through, you know, until the crucifixion happens. But that blank piece of paper also represents, I mean, not like it, they purposely did it, but 400 years of silence. All right. This is what's happened uh, here. This, this, this appearing of an angel is breaking the silence. All right. So but the, the time between the Testaments is from 4.30 to 2, maybe 3, here or there. It, it's often different, different information <laughs> places. But from 4.30 to 2 or 3 or so B.C., there's a gap. It's what's known as the silent period. All right? From the last writing prophet Malachi until this New Testament era has started. Um, there's 400 years of silence. Four centuries that the prophets have ceased to speak on behalf of God. God's just gone silent, right? It's just sort of weird as much going on in the Old Testament. But now this angel of the Lord appears, and not just once, but twice, first proclaiming the news and birth of John the Baptist. Uh, we go to chapter 1, 15. Well, it's the middle of the sentence here. I just put, but here's my paraphrase. <laughs> one filled with the Holy Spirit is one, is coming. Even 
from his mother's womb that this is going to happen, all right? So look, and it started at 14. And, and you, you will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of, of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So he's the forerunner of Christ's ministry. He's going to go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. There's that interesting, uh, interesting phrase that he says uh, when, when, when Jesus is coming, right? And he's like, he baptizes Jesus and all that. And he's like, now I must decrease so he can increase. And we say that a lot sometimes. I, I just want to decrease so Jesus can increase in my life. You're not John the Baptist. You don't have to say that. You're not the forerunner. He had to, dis, he had to decrease and go into the shadow now because he's prepared the way for Jesus to take center stage. All right. We don't have to decrease because you've died to yourself. I just want to make that point. You're dead. <laughs> You're filled with the Spirit. You're good. Now, in Hebrew, John means the Lord has shown favor. And this emphasizes God's grace in giving Zechariah and Elizabeth a child in their advanced age. If you know the story, they're older. They can't have a child. This happened. Zechariah doesn't believe the Lord. He actually questions the angel and the Lord mutes him. And he can't talk <laughs> until the baby is born. Uh, so uh, how, that'd just be funny if the Lord could, could shut all of us up at some times, I think. <laughs> just make us mute. But this child's filled with the Holy Spirit, even in the womb. And if you read the whole narrative that's going on, there's a lot of people getting filled with the Holy Spirit here. Uh, it's not just John the Baptist, right? But uh, he, he, he would go before Jesus. He would prepare the way, and he's fulfilling the prophecy that Elijah would reappear before the Messiah. If you go to Malachi, if you want to turn there, <clears throat> Malachi, the last chapter four. <clears throat> All right. It's right before that little blank page if you have one in your Bible. Chapter four, five, and six. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. In the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So we just read what the angel was saying about John, that he would turn uh, the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So he's fulfilling prophecy here. Now in Luke 1 here at 26, <clears throat> I'll, I'll read. I'll read some of this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying 
and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. It's very humble. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, this angel, Gabriel, was sent from God to this virgin, this betrothed to a man, Joseph, who's of the house of David. You line all this up, makes sense, right? Now Mary was betrothed to Joseph in this betrothal period, all right? Betrothal is when a couple were under obligations of faithfulness. It pretty much, It's still like marriage. But they have vowed faithfulness to one another. They'll take nine months to a year, not together, but proving their faithfulness. Usually the man will go prepare a home <clears throat> until it's time. Um, so they are to be, remain faithful to one another. And it's still pretty much like marriage because a divorce was required to break this betrothal. So just giving you some information there. This is why when, when Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant... He's like, oh, what? You know, like she, she's been unfaithful, but it all works out. We're not getting that far into the story. <laughs> but you should, you guys know this, right? So Mary is the Greek form of a Hebrew name. It's Miriam. This is her name. Um, and that's happening a lot in the, in the New Testament, actually. Um, you know, you know, Paul, we know Paul, right? We just went through Ephesians. Like Paul... Uh, Paul is his Greek name. Saul was his Hebrew name. He, did, he didn't change his name from Saul to Paul. They had two names because of the, everything that was going on in that culture. All right, so, so Mary is Miriam, all right? And it means exalted one. And it's clear here. It's clearly said to be a virgin. There's no ambiguity about that here. Uh, the conception of John the Baptist was miraculous, so an even more remarkable conception of the Messiah should be expected here. So Gabriel, Gabriel greets Mary, saying she's a favored one, and the Lord is with her. And she's, tr she's troubled, she's trying to f find out, and that's why I said she's, she's being humble here. Uh, th this favor was approval. Or affection, it's related to the idea of God's grace, this affection and favor. So here's this young woman, we don't know her, her age, uh, really. Some say 13, some say 15, there's others that have said 20. Uh, it's not got as technical as all the details I had last week. Some people just don't go that far, I guess. Uh, can't find anything out. What do you think? How old she was? <laughs> don't know. You're just staring at me. So. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. She's under the Mosaic law, okay? We have to remember, I pointed that out. And she's favored by God. And she, she, she is someone who has found approval and affection in God's grace. And I think that's a marvelous thing. This is before the cross, right? This is, uh, on this side of the cross where we're at, these things are true about all of us here, right? Right? Believers in Christ, we are, we, are, we are favored 
the Lord is with us, right? But this is a remarkable thing to be said about Mary. And we, we have other people through the Old Testament that this has happened to as well. But it probably shows she's troubled by this greeting. She's wondering, what, like, what? What do you mean? Like, this shows that she's got the scriptures. She's got the scriptures in her heart and her mind. She must be faithful to the Lord. And she hears all these things. It's remarkable, I think. I don't think we spend enough time sometimes realizing that. And the focus isn't on Mary. And maybe, maybe because of Catholic church and whatnot, we have a little bit of a distaste for talking about it as much. But clearly, there was something here about her that, that puts her in this position, position to be highly favored and have this affection from the Lord. Favored one. So she is troubled. And that shows her humility. But um, she was surprised to hear this. She, uh, th- these are extravagant words to be said to her that the, the angel is telling her. <clears throat> All right. So then he announces that the birth of the Messiah would be born to her. So the focus isn't on her, but rather on a son. It's to be named Jesus. And his actual name, does anybody know Jesus' actual name? This is just our, this is the English name. Je- Jesus to us is it's only been around since the 17th century. Anyone? <laughs> really? Before the 17th century, it was uh, Isaias <laughs> or something like that, right? There was no J. Uh, so the J was invented in the 17th century, so it, then it was Jesus. His name is Yeshua. That's his name, Yeshua. Uh, um, there's some people that are sticklers about that, and they always call him Yeshua, but, you know, I don't. So it's Jesus, Doss. But just letting you guys know that, <clears throat> that this, this, this virgin birth then was prophesied in the Old Covenant. God had told His people what He was going to do. It would be a supernatural act. Something that never happened. Something that would never happen again. Right? So, Yeshua. In Isaiah 7, uh, 14, I believe, it says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son... And shall call his name Emmanuel. So the truth of this virgin birth, this is vital. For Jesus to be God, he must be born to God, of God. A man and woman cannot produce a God, right? There's no way he could be God apart from being conceived by God. So wondering how this is going to be, Gabriel says to Miriam, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, what's remarkable about this, and again, something we probably can't really comprehend, is that the Greek here suggests that this coming, a coming of a whirlwind around her and overshadowing is actually the Shekinah glory of God that, would, that was over the tabernacle back then. So I, 
I can't really imagine that, what this was like, what happened here, but that's what the Greeks suggest, that the Shekinah glory would overshadow her and Yeshua would be conceived. So all of this would produce the son who will be great, called the son of the Most High. He would receive the throne of his father, David, reigning over the house of Jacob, it said. And it says forever, it says his kingdom, to his kingdom, there will be no end. His name, Yeshua, means Yahweh's salvation. Okay, Yahweh's God, right? Yahweh's salvation or salvation from Yahweh. So Mary was to call her son salvation from God. The promised Messiah. The fulfillment of God's promises of, of David and, and many others and Abraham, right? He would be called this because he will save his people from their sins. So last week we didn't get to finish. We did the, the when or the where and the when. So why? We know the why though, right? Jesus was born so that he might die for humanity's sin. So this birth, the incarnation, is the start of the fulfillment of many prophecies since the very start of deception of sin into the world. We go to Genesis 3. The serpent's in the garden. He's put, dece- he's put doubt in Eve's mind. <clears throat> She eats, Adam eats, this all happens. The fall has taken place. Chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And bruise also crush. So he's going to try, there's this enmity going on here. The conflict between Eve and the serpent moves to conflict between the descendant of the woman and the descendant of the serpent. A conflict that will culminate with the defeat and the crushing of the serpent by the one who will be, who, who will descend from the woman. All right? It's a done deal there. Adam and Eve were encouraged with this promise. Others throughout the Old Testament encouraged of the promise of a king who rules and reigns with a kingdom that never ends. Then this angel, Gabriel, shows up to Zachariah and Elizabeth and then to Mary and then to Joseph. This encouragement continues. Here it is. And the time, it was the time, the time for it to happen. Daniel 2. I love Daniel be fun to go through Daniel, actually. <laughs> now, in Daniel 2, I'm going to give you some context here, okay? Nebuchadnezzar, he has, this, <clears throat> he has this dream. He wants to know what this dream is, all right? He calls on the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans, summons them all, and he's like, hey, just, just to paraphrase all this, have this dream. I want to know what it is. You're gonna give, give me the interpretation, but here's the thing. I'm going to know you give it to me right because you're going to tell me what the dream is. 
I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. Tell me what the dream is and then give me the interpretation. And at first, I don't really think they think he's that serious. Uh, they're sort of like, oh, just tell us the dream, you know? And he's like, no, do it or I'm going to tear you limb from limb and I'm going to kill all of you. So, <laughs> okay. So, you know, here's a good point. It says magicians, sorcerers, all this type of stuff. There's some people that, that, that read the Old Testament about pagan gods, false gods, and all this, and they think they were real entities and stuff, but they were false because they're not real. <laughs> That's how I see it. But uh, uh, tr obviously, something's going on here where they don't have power that they claim to have, right? Because they can't tell the man his dream. And they don't want to. So <laughs> he wants to hear this dream and the interpretation. So Daniel hears this. He asks for a little bit of time. He goes and prays. He goes and prays, and then he, he gets it. And he, he comes <clears throat> to the king to interpret it. And so, so in Daniel 2.31, he says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold and chest and arms and arms of silver in middle, its middle and thighs of bronze, its leg of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and it broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Then you'll see down in verse 44, it says, And in those days, in those days, the king, uh, the, in those, uh, sorry, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And it goes on a little bit, and Nebuchadnezzar, he falls upon his face. He gives homage to Daniel, and he says, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. There's a great chasm here. There's magi here, these magicians and sorcerers. They truly have, would have known this. It would have been passed down, right? So whether they were a Jewish descent or not, we don't know. It was, we speculated on that last week. But they all got threatened to be killed. Here, a man prays to God, gets this man's dream, gives it, tells him the dream, gives him the interpretation, and this king falls on his face and says, your God is the God of gods, right? Jesus is born and these magi hear about it and they go and worship him and bring gifts to him. That's interesting to, to me. <clears throat> so in this dream with history, we have, we start with the head and go down where he was telling them the pieces and the, the, the bronze and silver and the gold and all that. It was Babylon. 
and then Medo-Persia, and then Greece, and then the Roman Empire. So Jesus is born in what? Roman Empire. Roman Empire. Okay. Rome, right? Rome is, right? This is when he happens. Some people say, no, this is future. <laughs> that, the, that the Roman Empire must rise again. I don't know how they do get that. But salvation is born, a tiny baby, and with him, it says we saw here, right? And in, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, a fifth kingdom struck, comes and strikes all kingdoms. Breaking them into pieces. Right? The stone that's not cut by human hands. Little baby comes into this Roman Empire. This tiny rock introducing the fifth kingdom. God's kingdom. It's going to grow into a mountain. Salvation enters the world also like this, this, this stone that's going to grow into a mountain. It's also like the trickling water like you see in Ezekiel 47. We don't have time probably to go through all that. But in Ezekiel 47, if you're taking notes, there's the, the temple. The, a little bit of water comes out of the inner courts. First it's just a puddle. Then it's ankle deep. Then it's knee deep. And then he can't stand in it. It's like the stream of water begins flowing. It's God's grace transforms what was dead to bring forth new life from it. it. Turns into a river of living waters. So a stone growing into a mountain, this trickle of water into a, into a stream, then a river. And with this kingdom, an increase of government and peace and the government on his shoulders. That's in Isaiah 9. A promise to Abraham of descendants as many as the stars. And Jesus would teach the kingdom. It's interesting that one part where it said all these, these kingdoms, these empires, they would just blow away like chaff at the threshing floor. <clears throat> John says one's coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then he goes to talk about separating the wheat from the chaff and burning the chaff up. Everything so... It all adds up to me. It's, I still marvel at the beauty of how everything in the Bible can reconcile itself with each other. The Bible interprets the Bible, right? Jesus would come on the scene teaching... This fifth kingdom. He's the stone, right? He's this trickle of water. Saying that it was at hand. It was within reach. It's like a mustard seed. It's like leaven. It grows gradually, right? So just like the principle of sin that was working its way out into the world from the fall. So salvation in God's kingdom does the same way, starting with the birth of Christ. So God promised it. Jesus brought it. His apostles said he brought it. The scriptures testify of its coming into that time. And, and the Father sent salvation, his Son, Son of Man, into the world that it might be saved. Not to condemn it. He died for sin. 
loosing us all from the grip of a spiritual death and a physical death. And we still die physically, but we go on to eternal life, right? It has no sting. He, he looses us from that grip. And the one who held the power of that grip, the devil, that's Hebrews 2, 14. And in 1 John 3, 8, it says that he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And the father was inside of him, reconciling the world to himself. This all comes from this announcement to this young virgin lady that the Messiah will come. Salvation to God's people. So God, God could, could have glorified his justice and destroyed us in our sin. But he didn't. Did he? He's actually chosen to glorify his grace and his mercy by coming in the likeness of man and dwelling among us to save us. Jesus was born to purchase the world and all of its nations, its languages, its tribes with his own blood. He was born to die for the sin of the world. Right? So I know it sounds more like an Easter sermon. <laughs> but this is the point of his birth. To offer new life, a restoration of relationship to the Father. And for us to labor in a world that's reconciled to declare and proclaim salvation unto them. When we have a cross-centered theology in the way we read the Bible and we look at it, then we see, we see this, that He chose to glorify His grace and mercy by coming to save us, not condemn us. So a view that where there's 50, over 1,500 years, but 4,000 years, 1,500 years of the Mosaic Law, and then Christ comes, He's... The, this law, the old covenant, everything in the Bible is types and shadows. He comes, he's the anti-type, he's the fulfillment, he's the substance. He brings it in fullness, right? And he accomplishes everything that he was, he, he was set out to do. He didn't get sidetracked. He did what he was supposed to do. He did it. He humbled himself, showed humility, obeyed the Father, and went to the cross to die. To save humanity instead of condemning it. And for all those who are in Christ, there's no condemnation, right? So to have a, a, a theology that's a little slightly off from the cross that says that at some point at the end of time, Jesus will come back and condemn and kill those very people that he's already saved and reconciled shows that we have an inconsistency in our theology. Sorry if that was stunning. <laughs> But that's inconsistent with the work of that he's done and accomplished on the cross. People will be judged. The world's not saved. I'm not teaching universalism here. So hear me. But there's too many people that I know that really want to be in this army of the Lord that comes back with Jesus and hacks heads off of people with him at the end of time. That's not consistent with the gospel of Jesus and what he came to do. The perfect representation of the Father God that says, I've reconciled you, so come be reconciled. Forgiveness is yours. Christ's righteousness 
is yours now too. Because he became sin. He who knew no sin. A sin offering. So we need to be consistent in our belief system, in our doctrine, and have the cross, the redemption of Jesus, the birth, the death, the resurrection centered where all things flow out of it to where it's a stone that grows into a mountain that consumes everything to where it is a tiny mustard seed that grows into the biggest plant where the birds come for refuge, a little bit of leaven that consumes the whole batch and his kingdom is a kingdom that never ends, right? If it's everlasting, it doesn't end He can't come back to destroy people because the people that he would destroy is the very people he died for to save. So for us, the ministry of reconciliation has been given to us to labor in the world that's been reconciled to proclaim salvation unto them. Come, be reconciled with the Father. So in the birth of Jesus, God invaded human history. The, the actual presence of the future, you may say, came into history in that time point in the form of a man, in the likeness of man, in flesh and blood. And he lived a sinless life and then he died this death at Calvary on the cross as he acted as the high priest and the offering for sin. And we know he was resurrected to new life. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many in Mark 10, 45. There's a lot of issues when it comes to that word ransom. We're not going to get into it. We just have to take it because it's there, right? But there's all these theories on it. It gets crazy. Ransom is just the Greek for a word to denote the buying back of a war captive. It was used of the price a man paid to redeem his life. It was payment made to obtain release and freedom. God didn't pay the devil anything or anything like that when it gets into that stuff. All right. He's just using this word, this picture of you are a captive. You were held in bondage to sin. You now have your freedom. I give it to you along with that. My righteousness, holiness, my blamelessness. That ransom price was his life. This is why the Bible says again and again and over and over that Christ died to save us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were justified by his blood. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. So we must understand that the act of giving his life was intentional. That's why he was born. It says he came to do it along with defeating and destroying the devil and disarming the rulers and authorities and the powers and the enemies. He didn't come here for any other reason. He didn't. He didn't come here and get sidetracked and, and, and get caught up in a, plat that re, in a plot that resulted in his death. It wasn't plan B or C. That was the goal. That was the intention. He came to die. He was born to die. And because he was an innocent, uh, infinite, or a fi- infinite, infinite sufferer, he satisfied fully and completely. And we are declared righteous through redemption 
of what he has done in the work of his cross. So Christ is our redemption. He's our salvation. And that is out of the love for the glory of God. He absorbs the suffering, the, 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 the wrath that was rightfully ours so that it might be plain that when we are justified as a, as a gift by his grace through the redemption of Christ Jesus, that God will be manifest, manifestly just, righteous, in counting as righteous those who trust in Jesus. So if you ever for a moment question God's love, then think about the birth of Jesus and think about his death and his resurrection that's given you redemption and new life. You see God doing what we could not do through the incarnation, through the death of his son at the cross. And so like last week, maybe the, so the, maybe the when and the where of Christ's birth isn't significant at all. But the why is the all importance. It's the most important that Yeshua the Christ in the carnation was born into this world in order to die for sinners. Christ's death was needed. He died to bear our sin and give us his righteousness. And he paid it all. And all he asks of us is that we trust in him. And that's it. You're in Christ. Stay there. So today we're going to do the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> May we, like the Magi and the wise man did 2,000 years ago, worship him.